A little update from our summer activities. We're in full swing on our softball season. And we may have lost 20 to 4 yesterday to the Baptists. So if you're a softball player, we're here to recruit you. But also they instituted a fence. And your pastor may or may not have hit a home run again. So... I don't have a lot of things left in my life. <laughs> yeah, Gary's clapping for me. So, you know, I figure if you, you could have the worst day ever, but if you hit a home run, just remember, I hit a home run today, and that feels great. This is all I have left, guys. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, we have a couple games left. If you want to join us for Salfo, we'd love to have you. We're in a new uh, series, as was mentioned, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 this morning. So if you want to grab a pew Bible or you can follow along on the screen, I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for uh, these moments that we get to have together to read your scripture, to um, think upon what it would uh, teach us for our lives. And I just pray that your blessing would uh, be in uh, this time to convict us where we need to be convicted, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and to remind us of who you truly are. Your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis 15, I'm going to read the whole thing this morning. So we have to read a whole chapter together. I'll read it, you listen. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who is to inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them into uh, pieces, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a sleep, a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphatites, Amorites, Canaanites, Jerushites, and Jebusites, and I'm sure some more sites of some kind. So uh, this, what's going on here? What an interesting text that we have before us this morning as we are here to discuss covenant. The first thing we need to locate here in the story is this great promise that God is making to Abram. And of course you know the story that Abram is childless and he is old in age and he has already made preparations for where he is going to be uh, placing his inheritance and yet God comes with a totally different plan, doesn't he? He comes and he says, no, you're actually gonna be the father of many nations and he says, come outside. And we need to imagine a night sky or a mid-afternoon day sky where there are no uh, pollution, uh, you know, lights that are distracting from the stars. And so there's probably hundreds, thousands of stars that Abram is looking at as if God is saying, I am the God who made the stars and I'm here to make a promise to you. And every covenant, as we explore them going forward, will always have God making the first promise. A massive promise and an important promise, and Abram's response to is one that has been noted in Scripture time and time again as so important, both theologically and how we understand who God is, and how we are to respond to God's promises. The scripture said that Abram believed the Lord and that it was credited to him as righteousness. Later, Paul, trying to explain a great change in the new covenant to the Jewish uh, people that he was trying to bring into a new way of church remembers this moment. And in Romans chapter 4, he speaks of how what is most important for salvation is what Abram did. Now Abraham, he says, because he changed, God changes his name later in the story. But it's simply out of an act of faith that he truly believed God's promise that he would be the father of many nations, that it was credited to him as righteousness. So, so far he's doing great. 
But then God goes on, and he says, not only am I going to give you a people, but I'm also going to give you a land. Well, Abram knew what that meant. Abram knew who was already in the land, and he knew the size of his group, and he knew the size of all the other groups. And so this brings a question from Abram, a natural question, an honest question, which is how could this possibly be? God, what are you going to do? And behind that question is really the first time where we see the humanness of Abram come out, one maybe we can relate to, because really what he's wondering is, God, are you who you say you are? Are you going to keep your promise to me? This is a question that I think we ask time and time again because God says some pretty significant and astounding things within Scripture. And so as we read then, we might ask, God, is this true? Are you the God who keeps promises? And we're going to find ourselves in circumstances that don't seem like they're going the way we want them to go difficult times in our lives, and those are the times even more so, right? We've all been through them, times of suffering and struggle, where we're asking, God, are you truly the God of promises? Because things are not looking good down here for me. And so we're going to see this strange response that God gives, especially if you've never studied the scripture before, David, remind me in between services, one of the good ways we might think about a story like this is if we are traveling to a different culture. And we need to learn about the culture so we can understand the meaning of the practices of that culture. And so we're traveling today to the time of Genesis where it was a common practice. We just read a common practice of covenant between two people. This is between God and Abram, but normally this practice would have been between two people making a covenant promise with one another. And you're going to have to imagine a time where there was no police or law in the way that we understand it. And so the way that law was enforced was uh, uh, totally different, probably much more chaotic with warring tribes etc. And so how could goods and services be exchanged in a way where people could know and trust one another and be able to do that well? Well, this custom was developed. This custom where there would be animal sacrifices that would be laid out parallel like an aisle. And then two people that were making covenant promises to each other would walk in between the animal sacrifices. The Old Testament scholar John Wilk describes what this custom would have meant. He says this, to walk between the carcasses is to submit oneself to the fate of the slaughtered animals as a penalty for covenant breaking. We actually see this in Jeremiah 34, 18. It says this, those who have violated my covenant have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they have made before me. I will treat them like the calf and cut that calf that was cut in two 
and then walk between its pieces. And so when two people would walk uh, down the carcass aisle, they would make, be making a pledge. They would say, if I don't keep my covenant, then may the fate of these animals be my fate. Now, this is an ancient, fascinating, and kind of weird to us and profound story of how God is making a covenant with Abram. And he's doing this in response to Abram's question, and he honors the question. He honors this question, God, how could you possibly do this? And so God wants to not only just pledge himself through word, but through action, through an action that Abram would have understood in his time, he wants to teach him something about his character that is totally unique. Tim Keller speaks about covenant uh, in a number of places so well, but I love how he talks about covenant This idea that not only are we entering into a covenant when we're entering into a loving relationship with one another, but we're also entering into the covenant because there's a legal aspect to it, right? That at the end of the day, when we get married, we're signing a legal document and we're sending that off to the government and there's a legal binding to this relational pledge to love one another. And so both of those things go together. The case is being made that this is the most profound type of relationship one can have. Keller writes, more loving than a legal relationship and more binding and accountable than a personal relationship. And of course, this is a voluntary act, right? That two people come to pledge themselves in front of usually friends and family, and they're coming there with all eyes on them to say, for better or worse, it's you. And I have had the pleasure of doing many weddings in my time, and let me tell you that they are always anxious events. I know we don't like to say that because the idea of love is so wonderful, um, and that it is truly a sacred thing. In fact, I've walked, watched many people walk down this aisle. Um, and also, I have my own wedding, so I have some idea of what the feelings were uh, at the wedding. And, and, and the questions we're asking, right, are those basic fundamental questions. First, can I keep this covenant? Can I be the type of person that is going to, for the rest of my life, care for this person self-sacrificially? Not in a transactional way. Because most modern relationships go something like this. I will be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be, right? And if not then I am out of this relationship and I will go find a new one. But a covenant relationship would go something like this. I will be what I should be whether you are being what you should be or not. Now the fear comes when we start thinking, okay, so if I make this 
pledge. I'm going to have to live into this, and I don't know the future. I don't know what's coming down the road. I don't know who I'm going to be, and I don't know who you're going to be. I know things are good right now. Hopefully, things are good right now. But who knows what life will bring, right? And therefore, it's scary. And then another reason why it's scary is because if you do make this pledge, then the other thing that will happen is the other person would see the relationship as more transactional than covenantal. And then you'll be in kind of a situation where you're getting taken advantage, where you're always giving, always giving, and never receiving in the same type of way that you're giving unconditionally. Now, if we're being honest, it's hard for us to move from consumer relationship to covenantal relationship. Our natural default and the world around us really beats into us this concept of transactional consumer relationship. This is just the mode of thinking within our culture. So to move to covenantal relationship is truly to move into the most profound, difficult, and meaningful type of relationship. These are the relationships that are the biggest priorities to us, right? We covenant with our children. We covenant with our parents. We covenant uh, in marriage, in family. We learn how to do that when we're doing life well. But sometimes, even in our own spirituality, we don't think in terms of covenant, right? When we're talking about being spiritual but not being part of a church, one of the things we're saying is, I kind of, I really like this loving experience I have with God, but none of the commitments. And so we need to be thinking, even with our relationship with God, in terms of covenant, why? Because God only deals in covenant relationship. It is the only form of relationship that he wants with us. But as we unpack the next part of the text, we're going to see it's totally unique. When we're getting married, we have two people, right? And and, and two people are making this exchange. But with God, something has changed. And the text goes on to describe how Abram falls asleep and he has this vision. This vision actually out of the darkness. And God starts to get a little more honest. Or not more honest, he just is honest. And he says, let me tell you about the next 400 years. The next 400 years are not going to look great. I know that I promise you the promised land, but for the next 400 years, the people, the children, after you have this great miracle of having a child in old age, and they have children, they have children, that those people will end up in slavery. Now, often in Scripture, we like to miss this part of the text. We like the good news. We like the promises. The most abused text in this, I've said this before, is Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, give you a promise in the future, which is really great. It was my uh, school Azusa Pacific's uh, verse, and it was on every license plate at Azusa Pacific. But the reality is that that promise comes after 
the truth that God's people will be in exile for 70 years before those promises come to fruition. See, God doesn't sugarcoat things. He tells the truth. He wants an honest relationship. And, I mean, we need to put this into context for us, too, because we're going through a rough season. I know we feel discouraged at times. Like, expectations are the enemy right now. We think things are going to get good, and then uh, we hope that they're getting better, and, and things change and shift on us all the time. And so maybe we could also contextualize some of this by saying, look, 400 years of slavery. We've been two years into a pandemic. We need to weigh the context here. We want to complain and grumble. We feel that in our spirit, but this isn't the time to lose hope or faith or to think that God doesn't keep his promises or that the character of God has changed somehow because we've had two rough years. And the inconveniences of slavery far outweigh what we are going through. But this is a dreadful darkness indeed that God is speaking to Abram about. But out of that dreadful darkness, there are two images. One is of a smoking pot, and one is of a flaming torch. Now, scholars debate the meaning of the symbols and the imagery here, but I like this idea that's drawn out from Exodus 19, 18, that the same word for smoke here is the same word on Mount Sinai uh, when Moses is there with Yahweh and the presence of God is made manifest in the smoke. And so the smoking pot really represents God's presence. And then the same thing with the fire and the flame, that the Hebrew word there is the same word that God uses when he's speaking of how he wants to be with his people uh, as he encamps with them when they're in the wilderness. And so we see God's presence made manifest in the darkness. And what does God's presence do out of the darkness. God's presence walks the covenant aisle. What is God saying here? He's speaking again to these primary questions, but in a totally new way. He's saying, I keep my promises. I will walk this covenant pledge. But perhaps even more uniquely, he speaks to that second question that we all have, which is, can I keep my promises? Am I able to withhold this covenant pledge? You see, uniquely here, only God walks down the aisle as if to say, I will keep this pledge for you that I'm going to take on the consequences of the violation of the covenant for you, that I keep my promises and I take on the consequences for when you don't keep yours as well. This is very early on in Scripture that we see the truth of the gospel message, that God walks for us. 
And you can recall, you can recall this imagery in the New Testament story, in the gospel story, right? In Luke 23, when it's depicting Calvary, and then it says that at noonday, at the midday sun, that everything went black and sunlight failed. And God himself says, I mean, Jesus says to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, later Paul describes this moment and he says this is what was happening at that moment. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So Jesus did indeed take on the covenant curse for us. Now this is the meaning of the gospel. This is the first place we really truly see the meaning of the gospel, what, where everything is headed and what God intends for each and every person. And we see that it isn't just talk, that God doesn't whisper sweet nothings or promises or need to uh, do attractional things or consumer things in order to bring us into covenant with him. No, he says, I'm going the distance for you. I'm going to walk down the aisle for you. I'm going to take the curse on for you and the consequences of that for you so that you can be in covenant with me. I have the great pleasure of doing a wedding for one of my uh, best friends from high school in a couple weeks. In fact, this is his second wedding. He got married last year with just a few friends and family, and he's going to have the party with more people coming up in a couple weeks. And he's a history teacher. And so I was, you know, this is my, one of my best friends. I wanted to actually do a really good wedding for him. And so I was trying to come up with jokes and Eventually, I was running dry, and so my wife started workshopping with me, and she came up with this great joke about how he was the very last one of my friends to get married. And so when we saw on his Instagram post that he had a girlfriend, it was like a historical moment in the life of our friends. And all of a sudden, he started wearing shorts and going on hikes and doing all of these things that he wasn't doing before he had a girlfriend. And how in the end, in the end of it all, that two marriages, uh, two wedding blessings will be better than one. Because we all need to learn how to walk out this covenant. We discover what love is not when we say the pledge to one another, but as we live out the pledge in our daily walk. We actually can look back and see what love is through our covenantal actions with one another, no matter the cost, and to say, yes, this is a faithful and loving covenant. And so I'm going to end my wedding sermon for him 
by saying, because you are a history teacher, I assume that one day, many years down the road, that you will have a little grandchild on your knee, and you will tell that little grandchild, yeah, for some odd reason, I had to have two weddings. Because let me tell you about the early 20s and what happened. It was a difficult season, a historical season, and yet we thought it would be a good idea to have as many weddings as we could in the way that we can to recognize that covenants mean that much and that they are the way in which we will endure. And so perhaps, again, this morning, you need to be reminded of your covenant with God. Maybe your baptism. Maybe a time where you stood up in front of the church and had your child baptized and made pledges as we made pledges to one another in covenant with one another about how to take care of each other and how all of that will lead us to deeper, more profound relationship with our Heavenly Father. Or perhaps this morning you need to be reminded that God doesn't whisper sweet nothings, but he keeps his promises, the ones that he told you long ago about who you are and what you were meant to do. And even though it's difficult right now, he is still the promise keeper. And so you can trust in him and have faith. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your covenant that you made possible for us by your death and resurrection, your sat, you satisfied all of the conditions, Lord, for us to know you. And we thank you, Lord. We give you thanks and praise and honor and glory because you are worthy. You are the only one who is worthy. Lord, help us to walk in the spirit of your great pledge to us. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.